This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello, welcome to Talking Dirty, episode 11. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and devilishly handsome horticulturalist. <laughs> and in hot and sweaty old Cambridge today, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen and Lily. <laughs> Lily, the um, slightly scruffy cockapoo. And joining us as the guest on our 11th podcast is the fabulous, the very lovely, the brilliant oh. garden writer, lecturer and organic gardener, Val Bourne. So welcome to Talking Dirty. Thank you very much. Delighted to be asked. Do you have any middle names? What I do, and it's Blanty. I am Valerie Iris Bourne. <laughs> yes, and I hated it when I was younger, but actually, as I've got older, I quite like the name Iris because it's come back into fashion a bit. Yeah, it really. I, has. I'm a twin. My brother's eight years older than I am, and my um, elder brother was allowed to choose the names because he was so scandalised that two more children were going to be on the scene eight years later. So that's the story of Iris. Did you win in that name selection? Did you get the better names? Um, I think my brother got Alan Bernard because um, he had two friends called Alan and Bernard. <laughs> I got a horrible name, Val, and then Iris. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I think Val is rather interesting, actually. I quite like it. Do you? Yes. It means yes. strong. It, well, strong, carefree, opinionated. And this yes, is Val, and she knows everything. <laughs> Now, the fact that you had a, a bit of a botanical inspiration to your, your middle name, um, I don't know if that speaks to a family that were into gardening. Where did your no. horticulture begin? Uh, well, um, I am the product of a very bohemian family um, who, um, my father and grandfather in the film industry, I had the sort of family life where I would get up in the morning and I would never know who was going to be sleeping on the settee. That sort of life. And that's why I'm so boring and I don't drink and I don't party. But um, I had a grandmother um, who was born in Yorkshire in 1881 called Lucy Elizabeth. And she was a very keen gardener. And because I'm such a noisy, exuberant person who wakes very early and doesn't know when to stop talking, she would take me in the garden. So I was gardening from the age of two and three. And she had had a big garden. Um, in Beaconsfield and she had a, a wardrobe with wonderful plant catalogues from Kelways and Scots of Marriott and when other people were out there you know doing discos and things like that probably my parents um, <laughs> I would be sitting in the bottom of this great big wardrobe reading these plant catalogues <laughs> so that's how I got into gardening oh very very peculiar <laughs> for all the reasons. and that's why I'm an organic gardener because she was born in 1881 so um, she was organic. And um, I think there's a very special link between grandchildren and grandmothers. And, and I have four grandchildren and I'm very close to them all. I quite agree because Granny Gray was my 
my mentor for ages. And I mean, I learned from all my grandparents, actually, both male and female grandparents. Yes. Um, and they, because I was the youngest, my mother and father were the youngest of each of their families, and the grandparents were quite old. But they had the patience to um, yes. to explain to a child that said, why, why, why? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. And I know when I first met Tom Hart Dyke, yeah. he came up to me and said, I'm so thrilled to meet you because you were my granny and she was his inspiration. You're my granny's favorite garden writer. And yeah. I said, well, thanks, Tom. I think that's a thanks because it made me feel incredibly ancient. <laughs> I am quite ancient. <laughs> How did you get into the garden writing then? Well, I was a teacher and I got to be a deputy head and I was offered a headship because they were reorganising and they couldn't really get candidates to apply. And I suddenly thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't know whether I'll, I'll probably end up in the funny farm if I become a head. And I had a friend who was working for Fruit of the Loom in the days when um, computers were the size of small suitcases, because it was 1994, 95. And I was reading, I was at her house and I was reading Gardener's World. And I always remember uh, looking at it and it was some young chap who did it. I can't remember his name. And all the plant information was wrong. And I got more and more irate. Geranium and Jessie doesn't do in drought. It's the first one to crisp up. And I got more and more irate. And if she had just got a new computer and she got her old one there and she literally threw it at me. Luckily, I caught it. <laughs> and she said, if you can know so much, go and do better. And that was it. And it was a hard, it was a hard graft. I didn't know anybody. So I had to start sending off envelopes and they would come bouncing back the next day. And it's very, very difficult because often editors don't know about plants and they don't know who, who's right and who's wrong. But eventually I did get established. But it, I mean, it wasn't easy. I lived on Aldi baked beans on three pounds a week. You, you, you think I'm joking, but I'm not. No. But that's really inspiring because so often uh, in the, the stories of people's success, it, it, it does hinge on knowing somebody. No, and I'm not good with people anyway. Twins aren't. They have their own little little mini world. I, I, I'm, I'm totally useless with people. I'm good with plants. I mean, I'm just not good with people at all. So Yeah, but uh, plants can't answer back. <laughs> plants don't answer back. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you could walk away whenever you want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Relationships are slightly trickier. But I do. I do agree with you, Val, that, I mean, there are an awful lot of people, especially the younger members of the, um, I'll call it profession, if you like, but, you know, yes. garden designers and people like that, they come <clears> into <throat> the gardening world and they have a gift for garden design, but they don't know enough about the plants that they're designing with. No, I get lots of designers asking me about plant information and what to grow. But you see, when I was younger, um, there was no plant finder. I mean, no. I, and I would want to grow oriental poppies. So I would collect every oriental poppy I could find and bed it out next to each other. And then I would work out which the thugs were and which the ones I really like were. Sadly, a lot of the ones I really like have gone because of Danny Mildew, but that sort of thing. And that's, I did that with so many plants. And I, I used to write to begging letters to botanic gardens when I was a teenager and say, I'm a really keen gardener. I didn't even have a greenhouse. And they would send me seed of something that I'd seen you know, that I really wanted to grow, like in Carvillier, uh, 
Delavaye, and um, I would grow it from seed. So I started, that's how I started my plant knowledge. It's all first-hand experience. And isn't that the, the, the really great way of learning? We talked to Bunny Guinness a few weeks back who said that she won't consider herself a plants woman because in all of her work, she doesn't have enough time and enough space to really grow things and get yes. to know them personally. And you kind of need to do that in order to really be a, a plant Yeah, woman. I think you really have to be into plants. I mean, I've only got a third of an acre here, sob, sob. But I went out this morning and um, I was looking around for one or two things to cut and I spotted... A snowdrop, Ruby's green dream with four flowers. And you know, I was so cock-a-hoop. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't need drugs or alcohol if you've got a garden, do you? You just oh. go out there and then you go and you look at all your colchicums and you know, they look so decadent and swooning. Actually, um, they are looking absolutely fantastic this year, as you probably know. Wonderful. We have the national collection here and I mean they are looking I will tell you a little story we had a plant event in the garden on Saturday the 5th of September and, and Richard Hobbs came and his uh, partner Sally oh, yes. and, and they bought masses of culturecums and because yes. the culturecums were in the, the bank yonder yeah. looking absolutely fantastic they sold a lot of them. Oh I was <laughs> going to write to him and say because I usually go to the East Anglia bulb sale and I couldn't yeah. get any. Oh damn. <laughs> I've missed that on Richard. He'd be more than happy to oblige. And he'll be at our our snowdrop event in next February, which you're talking at, aren't you? Yes. I haven't got the date. I appreciate the date. So I don't I'll give it two minutes. Sarah will push it over my shoulder. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I am. You know, I'm very keen on snowdrops. I've got 300 different ones here. And um, I, I absolutely love them. I, I just love plants. I mean, I, I love peonies. I love hardy ferns. I love dahlias. I like roses. It's lot, I've got lots of plant passions. Well, the date is February the 7th next year, February 2021. Right, I um, remember that. You just mentioned dahlias. I think this, uh, dahlias are a particular favourite of yours, are they not? They are. Um, we're very cold here. And some of the dahlias that you can grow in the south, you yep. can't actually grow um, uh, I can't grow here. For instance, mm. Fergus has a hedge of that great big pink. Um, Fergus parrot. Yes, great big pink um, giant deck thing. Uh, oh, a huge thing. I don't. Um, and um, I can't grow it. It just never flowers in time. So I, no, but I've you're got, talking about Dahlia imperialis. Uh, no, I'm talking about one called. Um, it's a big pink. Um, excuse me, getting up. It's a big pink called Emery Paul. E M. And he yep. grows it has, as a hedge. Yes. Uh, and they probably leave it in. I have to get all mine up. Well, we leave ours in. I'm, I'm sorry to say that we leave ours in here in Norfolk as well. Um, but being Ooh. close to the sea, we are relatively yes, frost-free. Yes, we're so lucky. Yes. Um, I mean, we're in the part of the country. Interestingly enough, I've been raising a race of East Ruston dahlias, all of which are more than two metres tall, which is which can be a bit of a bind because, you know, they need staking. Um, yes. and they, gets a strain at this time of the year to, to reach up and deadhead them. Yes. <laughs> but, but they're in such lovely sort of pastel shades and some have got dark foliage and some haven't. And I do this every year. I save seed, not scientifically in any way, right. but I save seed from a dahlia that I particularly like. And if we, if we get one plant from a hundred plants that I think is worth growing, we grow it. It's lovely. Well, I mean, it's serendipity with dahlias because yes, they're octoids, so they have eight copies of the same chromosome. So when the bees get in there, all the genes go up, and that's yeah. why you can get a seedling from the Bishop of Clandaff, like 
David Howard, which is, yeah. and they're both tremendous dahlias. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it is that, that's what interests me. I don't breed dahlias, but I, I like to cut them. And these big ones, I mean, I've got four in this vase, and they yes, just four. And it, you know, well, I cut them on Sunday, one, the allotment. And uh, this is Otto's Thrill, and yeah. this is um, Penhill Watermelon. Penhill Watermelon will actually, on, uh, as it ages, as the plant ages, mm. and then we get to the lower light levels, in our garden here, it produces single flowers, which I think, in a funny sort of way, are yes. even more beautiful than the double one. Yeah. Um, yes, I know what you mean. They do, yeah. when they get stressed, dahlias, the stems get a bit weak, and they do go to single flowers. But if yeah. you wanted, um, um, you know, these are all right to cut, but they don't last as long as the water lilies or the ball dahlias. They're the best for cutting. I mean, I'm not a flower arranger. I just like to go up the allotment on a Sunday um, and uh, pick a few and bring them back to the house. Exactly. What better way to enjoy them? I was very much against bald shaped dahlias because I remember them from my childhood as being the kind of things that um, probably, shall we say, people who didn't have good taste used to grow and sell. But one of them was a bunch at the end of their gate. There's a lot of snobbery. <laughs> Isn't there? Yeah. Um, um, this one is called Wine-Eyed Jill. Wine-Eyed Jill, really yeah. I'm not a flower ranger, but I really do love that. And the ball dahlias do last really, really well. I, I love my dahlias and the water lilies. Yeah. So. I think I almost feel like I need to go and have a lie down somewhere. That was such a lot of, like, a, a big wall of fabulous dahlias hit me. <laughs> got so many flomos now <laughs> well i'm on the rhs dahlia committee and we we get a lot of um people on the committee who grow dahlias for show and they want to deadhead they want to disbud them and they want them to be absolutely perfect but i quite like a bit of a, a symmetry and uh, smaller flowers and lots of flowers i'm just gonna write wine i jill down because i definitely give me, need give that me one. smaller Give me smaller flowers and lots of them any time. However, I just have to say that we do grow Dahlia Imperialis. And this year I haven't got it in the greenhouse, but I normally plant it in a very tall greenhouse, in the bed, in the soil, in the greenhouse. Yes. And it flowers October, November, December, January. Um, it grows to 12 feet tall. Its, head, its stems yes. hit the ceiling, bend over and look down on you. And it's absolutely lovely. And if you know the Rose Columbian Climber, which I is- I don't a, know that Rose, no. Oh, it's a mid pink, um, very full, very double, and very scented. Um, we grew, we cut the two at Christmas time, put them on the Christmas table, and it disturbs people. I yeah. can't believe that the dahlias are on the Christmas table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've only got one species, and that's murky eye, and I don't even know whether that's correct. But um, I, I don't grow them in the garden very much. I grow them all on the allotment because they yeah. like their own space, most dahlias. Well, murky eyes is infinitely variable. I think we've got it throughout the garden here and it's in every shade of mauve from the palest one yes. thing to a fairly dark colour. The, the only reason I've really got it is because it's hardy, even in cold Aston. Yeah. It comes through well, that's the thing about the species. Some of them are, are a lot hardier than uh, some of the highly bred big fat doubles. Yes. Every autumn I have to go up to the allotment and dig them up and yeah. bring them in. And then every year when I'm doing that and my husband Joe is helping me he says don't order any more dahlias Val and I go no I won't order any more dahlias and virtually as soon as he's gone out the door I'm on ordering dahlias. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is there's always something else that you want to grow. Yes yes there is yes I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible sort of plantaholic 
Yeah, me too. Mm. Me too. What I this mean, whole program's just... about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started a little bit of rejuvenation in a border where I have cobia scandens, which this last winter, of course, which was a non-winter, non-event, it came through the winter with all its growth and it flowered throughout the winter as well in the garden in our front courtyard. And it got a little bit out of hand and started to look a little bit untidy. So I thought, well, I'll just give it a quick tidy up. That was two days ago and I'm still working on it. <laughs> but that's what well, happens. I mean, I, there's lots of things I can't grow here. I mean, Fergus is always going on about zinnias. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I could commit murder because... I can't grow zinnias here, however hard I try. I really? mean, just, we're just not warm enough. I yeah. mean, you go down to the Vale of Evesham and it can be 22 degrees. You drive up Fish Hill out of Broadway, you cross Snows Hill and you've gone down four degrees. Yeah. It's really chilly and um, yeah. here, but there's wonderful light. You know, we're on top of the Cotswolds, so we get this wonderful, almost harsh light. Well, the wonderful thing is that life is a series of compromises and we all have to obey that because, you know... Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't know that I can do obey, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. Well, we have to compromise. Yes. Yes. So Kabir um, Scandens is completely out of my range. I have grown it, but it's miserable here. Well, let me give you a tip. Cobea pringlii is a white flowered form and is quite hardy, much hardier than Scandens, yeah. And it can... It came from that well-known plant seller in Badsey. Oh yes, Mr. Bob Brown. Uh, Mr. Bob Brown himself. Mr. Bob Brown. It's a, we. I'm on the trials with Bob, and, and yes. people should be a fly on the wall because we have some interesting exchanges. And I will talk about a plant, and I'll say, um, which we often do talk about plants, and I'll say, oh, Heliopsis, blah blah blah, summer nights. I think that's a tremendous plant, and Bob will rubbish it. And then I'll go to a talk two years later, and he'll tell me how good it is. Very annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go back to your, your garden, Val, yes. on, the, on the downside, there are lots of things you can't grow. But on the positive side, are yes. there plants that there must be yes. plants that really It's love. wonderful peonies. And I've always thought it was because it was cold. But we've got deep soil and we're on the spring line. But, you know, this year we had a really mild winter and it, it rained from September until lockdown almost here every day. And we didn't have, probably only had a couple of frosts and it was mild. My peonies have never been better. I probably mm. got about 50 peonies in my rose and peony beds and um, about another 30 on the plinth. So again, the best beloved, please don't order any more peonies. <laughs> I'm not sure, I have ordered some actually from the, from the French uh, nursery, but um, they haven't arrived yet. I always hope he'll be out when they arrive. Um, <laughs> So it's really good for peonies and roses love it here because it's very big sky. I'm not like East Anglia, which is big, big sky, but because we're on the top the light, and we face south, we get the light all day and roses love it. And yeah. I, can I get up a moment and just tell you about three of my roses that I really love? Yes. <laughs> um, well, I used to garden um, in Hook Norton. Um, which is the land of beer, although I don't drink. Uh, and uh, it was awful for roses, but this was one rose that I could grow, and it's Bonica, the little French oh, Bonica, yes. from the 1980s. And the, the reason I love it is because it goes on flowering to about November, even here. And when you get the first clusters, it's later than most roses. So it starts in July, and you get about 20-odd buds on a great big 
crown. But the best thing about it is it's a, it's a rose that will do really well in poor soil. It, it really is a rose that no one can fail with. And the lots of rose growers would put it in their top 10. Do you grow it's it, Alan? That's one of Peter Beale's favourite roses. Yes. Yes, he told me that when he came in. He said, oh, you're growing Bonica, my favourite. Yes, yes. Well, I used to go to Japan and lecture with Peter every oh, year. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he was great. Uh, and this is a rose that actually is associated with Peter. You couldn't have done better for me because this is gardenia. Um, and Looks like it. It's looking a little ragged, but it's actually a very big thorny thing that you could grow along a wall because I've got low stone walls that I grow roses all the way along the wall and honeysuckle right on the southern edge of the gardens. So they're actually in north facing soil. And this gardenia does very well here. And Peter knew about this rose. It's an American rose uh, bred by Mandarin about 1899. I think that's the right date. And um, Peter had seen this in America, but had never been able to find it in Britain. And he went to, over to Jersey because he was doing a talk in Jersey. And he told me that he saw the rose on a house in Jersey and he knew it was gardenia. It's very distinctive because the, the foliage is very dark and it's very sort of gently curving. It's almost like a sea monster rose. Uh, uh, and um, you get a really good flush of flower in June and then you get another lot in September. Um, David Austin says it only flowers once. Rubbish. Sorry, David. <laughs> uh, and Peter said he, he saw the rose. He went to bash on the door and asked for a bit. The people were out. And as he turned to go, a bit stuck to his trousers. <laughs> so that's one of my favourite roses, gardenia. And it has lovely scent, lovely sweet scent. And I'm very fond of hybrid musks. Um, I grow those along the wall. And I always get these modelled up. I think this is Cornelia. Mm. There's two, isn't there? They're all Cornelia and, and Felicia. But I think this is Cornelia with these lovely coppery pink flowers. Yeah. And uh, I really love this rose because you get these rather large uh, collections of flowers. And these hybrid musks, they're also good on poor soil because they were bred in Essex by the Reverend Pemberton. Uh, and uh, they're always really good in September. And he bred roses for scent. And um, so they're all, although they're very different, they're all scented. He's also responsible for Buff Beauty um, through his head gardener, Bentall. So Buff Beauty is another one of my favourites here. So I really do love my roses um, and, and I spend a lot of time in the winter um, trying to sort of prune them and look after them. And I've got two donkeys that visit over the wall and eat all the buds. So <laughs> I try to chain them on metal hoops to stop. So I, I, uh, roses are really good here, peonies are really good here. And um, because the bottom of the garden is quite damp because of the spring, um, wasn't very good for snowdrops, but it's been very good for trilliums, although I've had to cast the shade and keep them out of the wind. And very, very good for hardy ferns. So the ferns are fantastic at the moment. All the polypodiums, um, uh, cambricums are coming back into leaf and they're like green Christmas trees. They're beautiful. Well, Alan, I know that trilliums have been high on your wish list of late. So are you having a spot of trillium envy? Well, I was, but I mean, I, I, I've only got, uh, I mean, I did have a present arrive the other day and it was 500 trilliums. <laughs> yeah. Were they dry bulbs? They were dry bulbs, yeah. Yeah, they're very difficult. You know, I, when I was a child, Woolworths was the mecca for plants. Yes. And I right. would go down to Woolworths with my pocket money 
and they used to sell trillions that had been dug up from the wild and cyclamen. And I'd be rifling through the boxes to look for the bulb or, or the tuber or the corn that looked different from all the others. And I would pick that one out because I used to think yeah. that, you know, and I grow a lot of erythronians as well. They're very good here. So it, it's not all bad news, definitely. How are you feeling about Flomo, by the way, Val? Has any of this got the juices flowing? Well, I have found Flomo very difficult because um, I haven't really been anywhere. Um, you know, I couldn't go out um, because my, my husband's been very ill. So we've been stuck here since March, but also he was having a lot of cancer treatment last year. So we couldn't really go out last year either. So I find it very, very difficult to come up with a flow-mo. I feel such a failure. There's so many things I want to grow, but I can't actually think of them at this moment. And I've been around the garden looking. I, I, there are several things I'm planning to plant. Um, I want to plant a Philadelphus because I haven't got one. And uh, with a small garden, you have to be quite selective. And um, I want to put one in because I simply love the scent of Philadelphus. I'll probably go for something quite hackneyed like Belle Etoile. Uh, nothing too exciting. Uh, I do like new plants, um, but I don't always go for new. Some of the tried and tested things are, are really good to grow. And better bets as well, I think, because they've, they're tried and tested, as you say. And I mean, they are better bets. And, you know, some people often say to me, oh, but that's a common thing. But why is it a common thing? Because it grows very well for everybody yes. and people like it. Well, so I used be so to public. go to a certain nursery near Bangor because my daughter was at university there. And this was in the 1990s, uh, that sort of time. And I would, I would go up late 1990s, early 2000s, and I would go up three or four times a year and I went to this certain nursery and I bought loads and loads of plants uh, at, at vast expense every time I went. I haven't got any of them because they weren't tried and tested. A lot mm. of them weren't hardy. Um, you know, we have quite wet winters in the heart of England and they just perished. And uh, there's lots of, you know, really established plants that I really love. And, and this one, um, I really like Japanese anemones. I'm not threatened by plants that roam about or self-seed. I just pull them up or get rid of them. I mean, a lot of people like things to be very regimented, don't they? That's not interesting gardening. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's like a stamp collection if, if, if they garden like that. They, you need to let plants do what plants do. Yes, because when I moved here, I thought the garden slopes down to a spring. And I thought, well, I'll put all my snowdrops at the bottom. Well, it was too wet, but it was wonderful for primroses. So yeah. I've got a really big collection of interesting primroses and I just let them be promiscuous and get on with it and get some <laughs> wonderful seedlings. So the snowdrops have had to move up the garden. And you know, the best beloved is very unkind because when people come to see the snowdrops, he, I hear him saying, she's got the national collection of white labels. Isn't that <laughs> But this is Honorine Bar. And uh, this was actually marketed by uh, Victor Lamione, the French nurseryman. Um, I say Lamione because my grandmother did, but I think it's probably Lamoine. Um, he was the first man to get the VMH from the RHS, and he's responsible for all the tree lilacs um, that were bred, three generations of a nursery. And this um, uh, white anemone, Honorine Yobert, uh, grew in this lady's garden, and then he marketed it. And, it's the best white still. I think the it is something like 18, 
21. I'm not good on numbers, but it's a, it's a very ancient plant. It's a lovely plant. But the other thing I was just going to mention to you is that, that um, because I have a great friend who's a wholesale nurseryman and he does these wonderful things. You mentioned peonies from France. Well, I've managed to get some peonies from France through my friend Richard, who went to France and, and sent me a list, a most amazing list. It took me about three days yeah. to go through it. Um, and then we bought some peonies. Um, but there's also now a wonderful um, double, messy, very pale pink uh, Japanese anemone, which Rosie Hardy of Hardy's Cottage Plants has got, and I've just ordered from her. It has the disarming name of Frilly Knickers, um, but it is much you nicer. Must know. <laughs> <laughs> there's your flomo, yeah. <laughs> But it is a very, very nice Japanese anemone, and I've just ordered 10 plants of it because she's got a, a very good offer on at the moment. Oh, brilliant echoes. Mm. Yeah, this is another ancient one called uh, Bowls Pink, um, which has yeah. got the sort of um, uh, two opposite petals that are darker. And this is much better for me than Hads Abundance ever was. And I rather suspect they might have been the same thing anyway. I don't know. They're very similar. And the other one I grow, and they ram it, this rambles everywhere. <clears throat> when the roses and peonies are finished, this is all along the sort of front of the house side of the rose borders. And you, you sit down a little bit lower and you look through Pamina or Pamina, which uh, I really do like. It's a double. But it, because we had so much rain in August, these are tremendous this year. I mean, they, they really like um, doses of, of wet weather plants. And one of the things I really love about Japanese anemones are the buds because they, they always remind me of grey seed pearls. They're just so yes. beautiful. And then you've got the green heads and then they go a bit fuzzy. Um, so I, I, I quite like things that sort of um, place themselves and thread through the garden. I don't, I, don't like, I don't like to be too much in control. I always say about gardens that I, I think of them like women in underwear that are a size too small and they might just break out at any moment. That's my definition of a good garden. Well, see, it's interesting to go back to the idea of gardens that are a bit like um, stamp collections. I think the idea of a more informal way of gardening can be quite scary because it's what I'm drawn to. I absolutely want my garden to look like a, a lady bursting out of her underwear. That is my great aim. But yes. <laughs> as, an, as a new gardener, I always find that I'm just a step behind what I need to edit. And it's always things are going over, things need more, um, yeah, restricting, cutting back, moving, dividing, whatever, than I can kind of keep up with. So I think it, it can be daunting. I think if you're an organic gardener like me, and you, I don't use anything, I don't use slug pellets, garlic sprays, I use nothing. Um, probably the only slightly iffy thing I do is I put Vitax Q4 on my peonies and roses, and I don't know that's strictly organic, but I don't use anything. But that makes you have to put plants in the right place so that they stay healthy. Just like Alan said, you know, the plants do the talking for you. They're in charge. They tell you what they're going to do. So then you get all your woodland plants and your trilliums and your hellebores and ferns and everything in, in an area where there's dappled shade. You get all your summer plants and I've got um, roses, peonies, uh, garden phloxes, uh, all the sort of uh, summer flowering things are, are, are in the full sun area. And then I've got an autumn border that's full of grasses and tall perennials 
because uh, I'm still three years old at heart and I still want to look through everything. And, and by doing that, um, it's easier to manage because I won't be cutting the autumn border down until about February, hopefully. Uh, last year was so wet, I did cut it down a bit earlier than that. Uh, to give the birds a good chance at all the seed heads and the cover. Uh, I'll be, I've been tidying my uh, woodland borders uh, to get them ready because things will start rooting and coming through and it's all underground and I don't use any labels for erythroniums or, or trilliums and I let them sell seed, um, you know. So I'm doing that in September. And then when I finish the September tidying and I've sort of cut mini meadows in August and things, um, I shall go on to the summer border and then I shall do that in about November time and get rid of everything. And I often take all the foliage off my roses in, in November. So it's spread out. And what too many people do when they're young gardeners is they think they're going to have the all singing, all dancing border that's going to go right the way through the year. And it's a disaster because quite frankly, my peonies are ragged now. Past their best like me. No. <laughs> it's um, so true. <laughs> no, it's really inspiring to hear from someone. I mean, Alan, I find you inspiring, obviously, all the time. But 30-odd acres is, is a bit different to a little garden. And I have a tiny suburban garden. So it's always... It always a bit like visiting National mm. Garden Scheme plots. Or, or Richard Hobbs, who we mentioned earlier, who has a real kind of treasure box of a garden, a jewel box, which is very small, and yet he manages to, to yes. fit in uh, amazing plants. It gives me hope that I can do it too. Um, now, my FLOMO is brought about by my building up of a wish list of things for next year. I'm trying really hard to not buy everything because I don't have space, but inevitably I will buy more than never I... Never me off. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I will end up buying more than I need, and I am obsessed with trying to grow things from seed. And... Um, it goes back to Chilton Seed, who I always end up getting seduced by. And it's um, the little pink dandelion, that Crepis rubra. Is that how you say yeah, it? Yes. Which I've never grown before. And I, I'm just going to have to grow it next year. Yes. Well, good luck. You know, I mean, I've never found it that enduring, but I do like it. And, and then all those dandelion-like plants that look a little like dandelions, <clears throat> excuse me, and thistles are so good for insects. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm with you on that one, definitely. It's a, it's a nice thing. I, I'm a great Chilton Seeds fan. And many years ago, Chilton Seeds, when their father ran it, um, Douglas, I think his name was, I'd phone him up in the Lake District and talk plants with him. Um, we've still got a lot of, uh, a lot of bizarre seeds uh, that we've saved over the years from, from Chilton's from their early days. It's a great company. Yeah, really exciting. Um, it gives yes, me a lot of flomo. I think it's it's the best it's the best piece of bedside reading because it's the catalogue that you never get to the end of. <laughs> oh yes, Chilterns, and it, yeah. and it always arrived just before Christmas, didn't it? Exactly. Yes. Just on the doormat when you were when you were dreading Christmas because you got to go to Auntie So and So, and you could you could console yourself by saying. When I get back, I will read yes. the children's seed catalogue in bed you know, with a pen. Yeah. yeah. I still so, love that catalogue. So, Alan, do share. Yeah. What's your FLOMO this week? Well, my FLOMO this week is um, I, I like to have plants that I grow myself that I can bring into the orangery um, throughout the summer. And one of the things that I've, I have never had 
the success that I think I should have had with is Malmaison carnations. Oh, yes. And if you know Malmaison carnations, they are proper carnations yes. that smell like carnations. Mm. Um, they're unimproved, they're messy things to grow because the calyx split and the flowers can be shaggy and messy, but they are, there's just something about them that is just so wonderful. And Jim Marshall, who I know, he's, he has, uh, I think, the National Collection of them. He he's done. He's down in Suffolk, and I'm going to actually ask him if I can have a few slips or something like that from him so that I can do my best to grow Malmaison carnations, because in a, a large 8, 10 or 12 inch flower pot, um, yeah. just to bring them into the house when they're flowering, is absolutely beautiful. I mean, they're, they're not beautiful to look at in a funny sort of way. They're gawky plants, they, they're messy plants, but the scent is and the, and the history, I think, as well. Um, it just makes them something to, that, that's worthwhile keeping going, and I want to yes. do it better. I used to grow one that I had from Jim called something like Stormy Seas, and it mm. was a sort of mixture of blue and pink. It was almost like um, litmus paper that hadn't quite turned. Oh, yes. Like yep. the, the description. But I yep. really, I had that for a number of years. Uh, and then, you know, you get a bad winter and you lose things. And I'm not absolutely sure whether I've still got it or not. I'd have to go and rummage. <laughs> we've got we've got a, um, a Dianthus that we grow in the garden here, which is, I think it's one of the, maybe it's the only one. It has, has those kind of petals that are split and half of it is a kind of purple and the other half is a brilliant red. So the petals are striped and streaked. Sounds wonderful. Uh, they, used to, they were called bizarre carnations, weren't they, years ago? Yes, yes. Um, and I think this is about the end one left, and it has a very grand name of Mrs. Chumley Farron. <laughs> Reminds me of my poker Prince Igor that I had from Miss Ch Mrs. Charworth Musters at the Felly Priory. <laughs> I went to see her, and um, she she took me up into her bedroom, which had a four-poster bed, and she flung open the window so that I could draw the pattern of the topiary. And when I turned around, she had a shotgun, and she was pointing it out of the window, and I was between her and the window, and she said, I sleep with this under the bed and shoot the rabbits and foxes. And my, I love my Prince Eagle po uh, poker because it always reminds me of her with her shotgun. Yeah. They're so lucky. I mean, plants are just wonderful things because they're so much more than a plant. They're memories, aren't they? Indeed they are. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Now, before I let you go, um, yes. I'm going to run one question by you both, which came in from Peter in Switzerland. You can always email questions for Alan and our, our resident expert of the week, our, our guest, um, to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. Peter did that and attached some photos from his garden in Switzerland. He, he came over to England. He visited Alan at East Ruston Old Vicarage, which obviously he loved. Um, yeah. And he forgot to put his witch hazel Diane onto automatic irrigation. He's got about 30 pots on his patio, which are all automatically irrigated. Yeah. And he's quite happy about that. But when he got back, the leaves on Diane had all dried up. And over the next few weeks, it got worse. But he, he woke up. Um, one morning recently realized that it was in full flower seemingly five months early but the flowers are yellow not the usual red of Diane so what has happened and he's wondering will it flower again at its expected time I think probably the, the plant has suckered it's a grafted plant I would suspect mm. I've got one in the garden here and it's suckered from the base and of course the flowers are the um, the plant that is that is being grafted onto 
um, invariably you've got to take those suckers off because if you don't you'll get the wrong color flowers anyway but they are also much more vigorous than the plant that is grafted so you've got to get those off and get them as as, as close to the main stem as possible and you may have to do a little digging to do that because some of them sometimes come from slightly underneath the ground but you've got to do that and get them off um reason it's flowering now and um instead of uh, in the winter is probably because the strange sort of um shall we say climate climatic influences yes. that we've had with great heats and great um, droughts and then suddenly lots of rain and wind and all the rest of it. plants get slightly out of kilter mm. um I was, I was clearing a bed of <laughs> like my snowdrop which is flowering in september yeah, well no maybe your snowdrop is is one of those regne olga varieties is, that, but uh, I wouldn't, i've never had one in september before no well that's, it is very early actually october is normally in the month isn't it yes um, I'm, I was mentally thinking I must go and look at mine to see if they're, they're, yes. they're in there, but I don't think I'll bother because I think they'll probably be, they'll be, be waiting. I was slightly more cynical about um, Peter's witch hazel because I know from experience that um, misnaming is rife uh, with witch hazels and um, I wonder whether he got the wrong plant anyway. But the one thing that witch hazels hate is they hate summer drought and what they do is they drop their leaves to vertical um, to avoid transpiration. And that's a real um, sign of distress. Whenever you see a witch hazel with its leaves doing going straight down, you've got to get water on it. And I'm not that good at watering mine, but John Massey up at Ashwood Nursery has wonderful witch hazels with enormous flowers, but he pours water on them in the summer. And I mentioned going to Japan with Peter Beals. We always used to go in the rainy season. And when it rained in Japan, it used to come down like stair rods and you'd be walking through inches of water quite often until it drained away. So like these plants love, uh, you know, summer moisture and then they're like a dry winter. Uh, so, you know, it, if you do, I've lost one this year. Uh, and I think it's because I let it dry up. I didn't notice that it was in distress. I'm hoping it might come back. I haven't pulled it up or dug it up or anything. No, it's very wise, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's often like gardeners after a, a sharp frost in the winter, they think plants are dead. Yes. Um, and maybe they're not. And I mean, I remember the last really um, hard winter that we had here was 2009, 2010, I think. Yes. And we had, I mean, our bananas were raised to the ground. I mean, you probably had minus 12. We had minus two in the garden here. Yes. It did quite a bit of damage. And hebes in particular lost lots of their leaves. And everyone mm. said they were dead. And I said, no, they're not. They will come back. But the thing is, you have to put up with the fact that they gaze reproachfully at you until about the middle of May before they show any sign of regrowth. Yes. Well, it would be probably, probably be the end of June here. <laughs> 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 we did have once when I was gardening in Northamptonshire, we had minus 26. It was Goodness. like coming out of Dr. Zhivago, the ice patterns on the windows. Amazing weather. Wow. So we, don't, we never know what we're going to get, that's the trouble. Bit like on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should apologise now if I've talked too much. No, it's been, um, it's been an absolute joy. I just sit here, I am so grateful that I get to be part of these fabulous plant-filled conversations. I just keep writing it all down. Um, uh, <laughs> I haven't got a pen, but I'm saying frilly knickers. <laughs> <laughs> That's gone in. It has been my pleasure to be part of this podcast. Oh, mm. Plantaholics heaven. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> every day. <laughs>
let's mind you i need a much bigger garden i mean generally but if i'm going to keep writing all these plants down and want somewhere to grow them <laughs> happy gardening everybody yes happy gardening hey Fordies here just to say thank you so much for listening to talking dirty you are now officially our favorite person if you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.